You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. So you know how, walking down the street, you see people in motion on the fly, blurred, One face jumps out of the crowd at you. It's a blink, a glimpse, but you feel like you've really seen that person. Then you're on to the next. Growing up in the city, you are constantly seeing the faces of strangers, your eye taking them in so intimately, so briefly. Yes, he said, leaning forward, his eyes alight, narrowed. And you know how at the end of a day of being in the streets, walking to school, messing around with your friends, you lie in bed and you remember the faces, sort of like after images right before you fall asleep? They collect in your retinas and play themselves back like a slideshow on your eyelids, all these strangers your eyes collected through the day. Kate Christensen is the author of In the Drink, Jeremy Thrain, and The Epicure's Lament. Her new novel is The Great Man. Thank you for speaking with me, Kate. Thank you for having me. Kate, this is a fascinating novel about the world of art. And what is most fascinating about it is that the central character is not in it. (laughs) Why did you decide to write a (laughs) novel about the man who is not there? Well, I I decided to write a novel about a lot of women talking about the man who is not there. Um, And the the title is deliberately misleading. And I've been chastised by a couple reviewers for um, being misleading. But it's meant to be ironic. And it's, it's, it's meant to be rather obvious from the beginning, since it opens with the great man's obituary that it's a book about his absence. And the word great takes on some, some other connotations in the course of the novel. Um, but I started the novel with the line, it's amazing how well you can live on very little money, which was rattling around in my head for a few days before I started the book, sort of insistently. And I found myself one day writing it down, and somebody was saying it. I had quotation marks around it. And I had to figure out who was saying it and to whom. And it turned out to be Teddy, the mistress of this dead artist, and this, this opens the first chapter after his fictional obituary, she's walking down her hallway of her Brooklyn Row house, leading one of Oscar's two biographers into her kitchen where she will tease him and seduce him and be a little mean to him and eventually come to respect him in the course of the first chapter as he tries to get information about Oscar and she tries to debunk any misconceptions he might have arrived with. So the book the book began as the scene between the two of them, and I, they were talking about Oscar as as I started the book. Oscar was the subject of his of his biography and the love of her life. Um, so he was sort of the elephant in the room um, during their conversation. I put that chapter away, and when I took it out again, I saw that she had referred somewhat snidely to Oscar's sister Maxine, who's a painter, and also sympathetically but a little condescendingly to his wife, the long-suffering Abigail. And I started, and also to, uh, she was a little condescending about her best friend Lila, talking about how earnest she was and how she used the word delicious to refer to all sorts of things that you shouldn't call delicious because they had nothing to do with food. And I realized that it was a book about four women in their 70s and 80s, and I had to give each of them her own chance to, to sort of come forward and tell her own version of Oscar. I wasn't going to let Teddy run the whole show. 
um, although she certainly has enough opinions to fill a book all by herself. It, it really was, I realized, a book about these women. And the title, The Great Man, was there from the beginning, just inevitably, in my mind. I, it, it was To me, it's the perfect title, but I can't really say why. Well, no, I totally understand it, and it seemed to me from, from the very beginning I, I could detect the irony. Uh, I was fascinated by the setting of the New York art world during the 50s, 60s, 70s. You must have done a lot of research, and unless this is something you know just off the top of your head. <laughs> I actually did no research. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that that it's only peripherally about the art world. And I think that I fictionalized the art world. I don't I didn't even try to represent it accurately. The art world in New York as I know it is is quite different now from from what the the novel suggests. And the novel is a comic romance and I can talk more maybe about the structure later, but in terms of um in terms of representing life as I know it, I felt like I wanted to make Oscar a painter of female nudes because he's obsessed with women. And there are not many occupations that give someone unlimited access to naked women. And that was, that was the most, that was sort of the most pleasing one aesthetically to me in this novel. Um, and I made him a painter also because I wish I were a painter. And so I also made his sister a painter so I could go into her studio with her. And that opens the section, the three chapters that are about Maxine and shown from her point of view. His his bitter lesbian older sister. And it opens with her in her studio. And that I wrote to give myself vicarious entertainment. I think, I think I'm interested in the art world of the 50s and 60s because New York was the center of the art world then. And if you were a painter, you were really making a statement if you did something that wasn't like what everyone else was doing. If you painted a black canvas or if you painted figurative female nudes during that, you know, the abstract expressionists were having a big party at the Cedar Tavern and the White Horse, and Oscar didn't go. So he was a maverick, and he sort of self-styled himself as apart from what everyone else was doing. And, um, and that was his romance of himself. And I think, I think there was a lot of romance around artists back then that may not exist now. They were sort of the rock stars of their time. Uh, I can't help but notice that the protagonists of this book are probably, I'm guessing, nearly, if not more than twice as old as you are. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you choose to work with that age group? I don't really know. I, I, all I can say is that Teddy is the one who was saying the first line about how it's amazing how well you can live without very much money. And she was talking about these other older women. But I think there's, there's something about writing about older women that is directly in line with, with my first three novels. Um, I think that I'm really attracted to characters who are outside of the mainstream and sort of on the periphery of money or success or, you know, um, some sort of conventional life. And in, in the case of this novel, I would say that Oscar is, Oscar represents success, and he represents not convention, but a sort of, a sort of source of light that shines on these women who were peripheral to him. And um, he, was, he was the person that they all looked to for this idea of what they didn't achieve in their own lives, he did achieve. 
And so even though he was a schmuck and a jerk and he didn't treat people really all that well, um, he was charming and he, he did give exactly what he promised. He was always true to himself and consistent, consistently schmucky. So they always knew what they could expect from him. You have a, a really nicely diverse cast of characters and a large cast of characters that we get to know very well. And one of the things I liked about this book is uh, are the biographers because they're major characters, but you don't really think they're going to be at first. <laughs> yeah, well, they're sort of they're sort of the mechanism that sets the plot in motion, and they. They don't really get their own sections. I wasn't really very fair to them. Um, I think I think in my first draft, I went into their heads. I allowed myself to go into the head of every single character in the entire book, and the book was a mess. So I had to narrow it down to the four women. So originally, I had the biographers reacting sort of with shock to a lot of what these women were saying because they don't really know what to make of it. There is a big generation split and also the split of gender between them and these women. It's these two young men asking questions about, you know, Oscar of these women in their 70s and 80s. And these women, all of them, say things that the biographers don't expect, and especially Ralph, because he is he's the black biographer, he's gay, and he's very academic, and he really just wanted to write a critical study of Oscar. He didn't want to write a biography, but his publisher convinced him that that was the way to go. So he bit the bullet and is asking questions about Oscar's life when he would really rather not delve into anything personal. He would rather just write about his art and keep it at that. And I won't say what happens to him in the course of the book, but each biographer starts out with an idea of Oscar that gets completely turned on its head in the course of writing the biography. And by the end, and the book ends with the fictional book review of the two biographies, what they started out thinking has completely changed. So they're sort of foils, uh, in a way, more than characters in their own right. But that's that was intentional. You have a lot of fun at the expense <laughs> of the <laughs> art world. You, you, tell us a little bit about why you like to just deconstruct <laughs> and destroy what you say, or what your characters say, that is, about a Jackson Pollock and the abstract expressionists isn't particularly friendly. No, but it's, it's through Oscar's eyes. Oscar was the kind of guy who just hated everybody. He felt superior to everybody. So he calls Jackson Pollock, I can't remember, like a retarded kid who dribbles in his sleep or something. And um, he's not very nice to Bacon, and he, he, he hates John Curran. And, I mean, he just, he just hates all his fellow painters. And I've known, I've known artists like this who can't like anything any of their contemporaries are doing. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I took a lot of pleasure in, in writing. Teddy quotes Oscar's view of the art world to a shocked Henry. Or actually, I think it's Ralph. Um, and I took a lot of pleasure in, in having it come out in Teddy's voice. And then I think it becomes clear that Teddy doesn't even agree with everything that Oscar is saying. Um, but she takes a lot of pleasure in, in doing his hand gestures when he's all worked up about how awful the abstract expressionists were. He does his hand like a tarantula on the tabletop. <laughs> yeah, no, I did enjoy that. Teddy St. Cloud, Claire is her name. She's a really fascinating character, and I, she arose from one phrase. How did you fill in the rest of the edges of this character? I think the opening quote that she says at the beginning of the book says a lot about her, or it did to me. It was like, 
it was like a cell. It was like you can you can clone an animal from one of its cells or something. And that was the cell from which she sprang, sort of full-blown in my mind. I really saw her clearly, this sort of elegant, waspy, very slender, very still very beautiful and very mischievous woman who has been independent all her life, never admitted any vulnerability to anybody, um, and who is determinedly sort of flirtatious. She will not let age stop her. Um, so I don't know anybody like her. She wasn't, nobody, none of these characters were really based on anybody. I sort of in, invented them, um, which is unusual. All my other novels have people drawn from real life, which has gotten me in some trouble, but um, that's what I had to work with. Um, I use them as models, sort of like painters. Um, but this novel is really made out of whole cloth. I made up all all the characters. Well, one thing I, I noticed when you when you have characters who are this old, it gives you access to a really interesting range of writing and attitude and memory and and even plotting. Could you talk about the how the age of the characters, how you use that as a literary device? Well, the the richness of having decades to look back on, I, I had a lot of fun in a kind of deep way with characters who have all this time that they're looking back on and not a lot of time that they're looking ahead at. And, but yet they still have a lot unfinished. They haven't, they haven't tied up a lot of loose ends. And I found it really fascinating to imagine being that old and still feeling a lot of the things that I feel now and that I felt at 25 but having decades to look back on of experience, um, not necessarily wisely. I don't think any of these women is stereotypical in that she's, you know, this wise old woman looking back at a long life um, of fulfillment um, and, you know, quiet joys or whatever. No, no, they're, <laughs> they're, they're all catty and, and <laughs> not, not imperfect. Yeah, quite flawed. But I think I think one of the things that gave me pleasure in writing this novel was creating these women who are that age, who are still lusty and still angry and still sort of full of life and full of things that they want, um, which I don't see too much of in, in literature. Well, I really like the, uh, the, I guess, the, you once again return to a theme of your previous book, Rot, <laughs> and, and aging and decrepitude. And, and when you play that off against some of the romantic notions of youth, when we're replaying the romances of youth against the decrepit, rotted reality of what people are at that age, as you created these scenes, didn't did they make you uncomfortable? <laughs> are you talking about the sex scenes yeah, between yeah. people in their 70s? Yes, you know, I, well, I, I also wrote about another character, um, the, the wife, I think it is, imagining what young people must think about when they imagine old people having sex. And so I got into that whole, in her mind, looking across the table at the young biographer, talking about, I think, talking about her affair that she had or, you know, thinking about her own sex life or something. And she's thinking... You know, young people must be just, they must think these wrinkly old mouths are mashed together in these high-pitched guttural voices. And she really gets into what turns, you know, young people off about old people having sex, <laughs> these decrepit bodies sort of, you know. Um, but then I wrote the sex scene, and I won't say who it's about, but two people in their 70s have sex twice in the course of the novel, rather passionately. Um, 
And I, I was aware as I was writing it of feeling like, you know what? This sex scene could be could be any age, except for th- things they say to each other. The dialogue conveys their age more than the actual sex scene that I was writing. I think they're more aware of it um, and more self-conscious about it than I was, if that makes any sense, writing about it. Uh, that's fascinating. But, and also, a- as we talk about the, the, the way these people have aged, they all have families, and the families play a really important part in this. It creates a really complicated web of, of a realistic-seeming life that's not neat, not tied up in literary uh, niceties. I think you're talking about the two families. Yes, And yes. there's one family that it consists of Oscar's wife, Abigail, the nice Jewish girl he married, the rich Jewish girl he married, um, with the apartment on the Upper West Side on Riverside Drive that was Oscar's primary residence, and then Teddy, his mistress, who lived in the house on Callier Street over in Greenpoint and was and worked actually for the law firm that represented Oscar. She was his lawyer's secretary, um, and that's how they met. And she was the mother of his twin daughters, and he never changed a single diaper, but he went back and forth between the two houses and also down to his studio on the Bowery where he bedded every model he could get his hands on. Um, and everyone put up with this. And I think that's that's the sort of glue that that held the family together was that nobody wanted him around all the time. I mean, he was. I think I, I imagine. I mean, my picture of Oscar is that he was a lot to handle, and when he was there, he used up all the air in the in the room. And he was charming, and you know, he was he was I guess kind of fun to have around. He had to have been, and in my imagining, he had that kind of great man sort of ego, where he would come in and 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 just you know. And be be entertaining for a while, but then he would leave. And um, I can imagine a sigh of relief in each household as he went to the other. <laughs> hence, hence the equilibrium that sustained itself and the messiness through the years. I was also fascinated by the humor. You have a, a this book is very funny, but there's not a lot of jokes in it. And so I'm wondering if you talk about the kind of writing about a, a sustained kind of amusement and also a dyspeptic amusement because your characters are, <laughs> are, are somewhat uh, constantly annoyed with life. Yeah, that's kind of true of all my books, I guess. I, I, yeah, I guess. And Is that true know, of you? <laughs> I, think, I, I think I do my best not to let it be true of me. Therefore, I have a lot of bile left over and a lot of sort of static electricity that I channel into my novels. Um, because I think in real life, I try to get along with people and say the right thing and not offend people. I get very anxious if I think I've offended someone. So it takes a lot of energy to sustain that sort of you know, anxiety about doing and saying the right thing. And I think that I'm really, I really have a mischievous side, and I really like trouble, and I would like to create more trouble in my life, but I, I don't like the consequences. So I pour it all into my novels, and I, I allow my characters to say and do things that I wouldn't say and do. So I think they're far more dyspeptic than I ever appear, but maybe that's not true. Well, the, the book is, is, is very funny and really enjoyable, and you have a lot of nice, gentle, skewering back and forth of each character looking vision of the other and of the same events. And when you were writing this, did you have to like map out a core version of what happened <laughs> and then write everybody else's version of what happened? 
No, I write really improvisationally. I don't ever map out my plots. And I think plot is something that I struggle with um, to make sure enough happens in the course of the novel so it's not just people talking. In all my early writing, it's just people talking. Nothing ever happens. So I have to, I have to really force myself to make stuff happen because um, I'm really interested in people talking and eating and you know going to bed together or arguing or you know just, just bantering. Um, so the plot in this book... I, I really thought a lot about, after I wrote the first draft, which was a mess because it was just people talking, um, it was a lot of blather, and um, I didn't know where it was going. And then I realized I needed a structure. So I borrowed an, a very old structure, the comic romance, um, from a lot, of, a lot of writers who used it very successfully. So I felt like it was a tried and true structure. And this is the first book I've written in the third person also. So I had multiple points of view to contend with, whereas my first three books were all one person taking over my brain and, and sort of and ranting, basically, for the course of a novel, um, which entertained me greatly, especially The Epicure's Lament, which essentially wrote itself because Hugo, Hugo had a bigger personality than I did. And when he hijacked my brain, I just said, you know, I turned the keyboard over to him and he did all the work, really. I mean, it sort of went it like seemed that. that way <laughs> to read. <laughs> Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But um, with this book, I had to really think about it um, pretty hard and think about, um, not not in terms of mapping it out necessarily, but in terms of putting things in order where they needed to go. Well, there's a lot of really interesting uh, structural stuff in here, because one of the things that as readers, part of the plot for us is putting together Oscar in our mind. And that's a really interesting way of plotting a novel, of the reader putting together the puzzle of who is the central character. And I think I think he was the same. I think he was very consistent. But I think they were also different, that the way they see him, and if they see him differently, it's more a reflection of who they are than who he is. And I think, I think the nature of biography, which I also didn't make the novel about, I sort of used it as a device, but I didn't, I didn't really delve into biography and, and, and what it does. But I think, I think what interested me about having two biographers and having four women, one of whom doesn't get interviewed, the best friend of the mistress, but who is there nonetheless with her opinions and her feelings, and they come through in the course of the novel. Um, I was really interested in how, how it's not Rashomon-like necessarily, but it is somewhat fractured through whatever mood they happen to be in. And this, I think, is an opportunity for sort of comedy um, and drama, the way Maxine's in such a bad mood when one of the biographers is there, she ends up just blurting out really just the meanest stuff about her brother and feels horrible after the biographer leaves and takes to her bed in agony at what she said. And I can just imagine that happening. I can imagine, I mean, it's just like any relationship between two people, but one of them is now dead. And so they have, now they can turn the tables and paint a portrait of him, whereas, you know, he sort of had all the cards when he was alive. It's an opportunity for them to sort of discover all the things they felt about him that they didn't necessarily say while he was alive or let themselves feel. So there's a lot of steam being let off, I think, by all of them in the course of the novel. Well, the you also have some very other interesting plot points. And I one thing about the biography, you do take a swipe at biography. Take a swipe at anybody, <laughs> pretty much anything that's in the purview of this book gets gets clawed or mauled slightly. It's like a cat paw going yeah. through the book. <laughs> yes. 
And you do do have some fun with biography, and, and I, I love your quote of the the sort of claptrap that gets included in every biography. <laughs> Are you talking about the asterisks? Well, well, there's there's yeah, there's one point where where somebody says something, and he says it's just like what they write in a biography. And you, you write out the perfect kind of blurb there that would be in a biography. <laughs> and also, you do. I, I'm, I really like the kind of the metafictional parts of this, just a little bit, but you do use it really well. The 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 uh, obit that opens and, and especially the review that closes are very, very funny. Thanks. I'm glad you think so. I think a lot of people haven't really liked them. Um, and I meant them to be funny. I meant them to be sort of plotting, you know, sort of to, you're right, metafictional in a way, to kind of comment on what's gone before and after, but in a way of, in a way of, you know, how we're reducing something to its facts doesn't, it just is so limited and limiting. Well, what's nice is that we get the little info dump at the beginning <laughs> of who Oscar was. We know everything about him before we start the book, but we don't know him at all. Right. And then for the rest of the book, we it's like somebody's throwing garbage and spaghetti at, this, at, right. a, at a skeleton and saying, oh, well, that's the person. I like the spaghetti. <laughs> Well, you've uh, you've never seen spaghetti thrown. <laughs> <laughs> it sticks. It does. This book also involves a lot of interesting um, observations about the way men and women relate. And one thing I absolutely love, uh, a quote that Maxine says, is that uh, men were turning themselves into women the way women had turned themselves into men during the feminist heyday. And this is a really interesting observation. I think these two biographers, especially Henry, who has a shoulder bag and who uh, claims to take care of his his child, um, as they call them now, instead of kid, um, and change diapers and sort of, you know, he's he's like an equal parent. Well, he shows up with the kid. In yeah, the right. <laughs> so so there's some proof. But his wife was at a yoga class, so he had to, <laughs> he had to take the kid. Um, I think I think that um, seeing seeing men my age through the eyes of women in their seventies and eighties was really entertaining, and I I mean I I realize this is a this is a real sort of um, I don't know what the word is it's it's a generalization a gross generalization, but um, I do see a kind of desire on the part of men of a certain age being thirty or forty or even younger to appear. Um, Less, less, uh, not macho. Machismo is out. And they're contrasted, obviously, with Oscar, these two biographers, um, one of whom is gay and the other of whom is straight and married and sexually frustrated and, um, and, and not macho at all. But both of them are in love with Oscar. And what they're in love with, I think, is a kind of masculinity that each of them isn't, for, for different reasons, um, capable of or allowed to claim as his own. And Oscar, of course, was a tomcat, and he was bad. He was a bad boy, and he got away with it. And I think there's a kind of fascination on Henry's part especially, and a kind of, as as the mistress points out, he's projecting his own sexual frustration onto Oscar. Um, and seeing him and, and seeing his life and wanting to, to co-opt it in a way in writing the biography to get a piece of that for himself. Well, this book also has some interesting comments, too, on marriage and fidelity and infidelity and the consequences of any all of those events. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Um, and that, I think, is a major theme of the book, fidelity 
and loyalty and infidelity and disloyalty, not only in marriage, but also between siblings and between friends and um, between generations, um, parents and children. But in terms of marriage, there's Oscar's marriage to Abigail, and then there's his other marriage, which was never made legal, but which lasted for more than 40 years um, with Teddy. And he was true in his way to both of them. It, it's interesting because you do create... Fidelity is what you make it, not necessarily what we perceive it to be. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And each of these relationships um, amongst the older generation is in one way or another chosen, self-determined. Um, and and especially between Teddy and Oscar, I found their, I, I was really interested in writing about their relationship um, because it's not like any relationship that I know between a man and a woman where the woman keeps her own household, supports herself, raises their kids, um, works full time, doesn't complain, doesn't ask for anything. He gives nothing. He shows up. She cooks for him, seduces him, and then he leaves in the morning before their kids wake up. And she doesn't seem to mind. And I kept waiting in writing about Teddy for her to crack. I kept waiting for her to give up the real resentment that she'd always felt. But I never, I never, um, I never felt that with her. I never felt that from her character. And I, I didn't, I felt like there was a lot that she wasn't saying of all the characters in the novel. I think that she's the most, she's the most um, of a control freak about what, how people see her and how she wants to be perceived. And I think she's the least vulnerable. So it was, it was hardest for me to know her of all the characters in the book. I felt really easy with Maxine. I felt like I knew Maxine top to bottom. Um, Maxine and I are sort of sisters under the skin in a way. And um, she's, she's, she's the sort of character that I could easily have let narrate the entire novel. I could have just turned it over to her and had it be the great woman, you know, as, as one reviewer suggested I ought to do. But then I bridled at that and thought, but I've done that already. I've done that for in three novels already. So I think, I think um, with Teddy, she was a mystery a little bit to me. And that was interesting to write about a character um, and to give myself over to a character that I didn't fully relate to and who isn't like me and who I didn't completely understand. It creates a, a, a kind of an authentic feeling for her. her. Her feelings and her reactions seem very authentic. They seem to come from a core place that maybe we don't have access to, but we really believe just by virtue of the consistency of her dialogue and, and the prose that surrounds her. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, and let's talk a little bit about the prose. When you're, it's, there's lots of really great lines in here. I, I love when you describe the, the, the baby lolled against his check, chest like a drunk in a deli doorway. <laughs> <laughs> did I write that? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of, I think, permeating this book and, to, and truly not just permeating, bursting through the, the Epicure's Lament is a lot of bottled up rage and, and anger. And it's tempered by a certain acceptance and maybe even happiness with the way things are. But what, where does all mm. that rage within you come from and where is it aimed at in this book? I think that there is, I have a tremendous amount of rage. I think less so the older I get, but when I was younger especially, I was deeply enraged. I was furious on a personal level and also social and political level. 
but I'm, I'm not a political person. And I've, I actually am quite apolitical, I think, except um, listening to the news or watching the news makes me want to smash something. So I guess I'm not as apolitical. I just feel helpless, really, in the political arena. And so all, these, all this bottled up rage I feel about the way things are and the status quo, um, I think gets channeled into these characters. And I think it's one thing and one reason why I'm attracted to this kind of character who, who is so full of bile and who says all these things. Um, and I think in this novel it's more diffused because it's about more characters. It's about all different characters who are enraged to varying degrees. I would say Maxine is the angriest character in the book, probably. And she's, she's where I channeled it in this novel. I don't know. Did you find that? Yeah, you know, I would definitely agree. She's mo- she's very funny. I really like Maxine oh, a lot. <laughs> there, there, there's a scene where where she attends a party that I just where and she's kind of just standing alone and looking at the people and dreading dreading the approach of the people. And then that that's a that's some it it crystallized feelings that I've experienced and I've never read about before. Me too. I feel that way too. And I was almost jealous when she she thought to herself, no one cares when old people leave early. I can get away with it. I can get out of here. And I was thinking, yeah, that's true. Old people can leave early. They're so lucky. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they don't have to make nice conversation. And that's another thing about people in their 70s and 80s is that they're more free to say what they think, I think. They don't have to be as nice as younger people for some reason. And maybe that's not true. I mean, maybe people that age would disagree. Um, but I was feeling that writing the book, that they've earned the right to speak their mind. It, it, you know, you're absolutely right. A, I think it's actually factually true that, that old people are allowed to say whatever the heck they want <laughs> because they have the veneer of authority and <laughs> nobody wants to get them even more riled up. <laughs> But also I felt that these characters, one of the things about this book that is, is appealing is that that you really feel that the characters are never – I don't sense you as an author around the characters. I just sense them bristling and doing whatever the heck they wanted to. And how does it feel to lose – do you lose control of your characters? I think I make I, – I, it's, it's like starting a novel – that's that's um, that's what I hope is going to happen. And for the novel to really get underway, I have to I have to lose control of my characters. And and by by that I mean, um, and I hope this is what you meant also that they take on a life of their own and they say and do things that surprise me, because I'm not controlling them. I'm not putting my own. I'm not writing didactically. I think. And this is where the improvisational thing comes in too. I feel like I'm writing viscerally, kind of on a gut level. Um, with curiosity, wondering what they're going to say and do next. But, um, but I, I feel like I feel like I want to show people the way they are. Um, I don't I don't feel a lot of a lot of big agenda in in what I'm writing. I don't feel the need to get a message across, for example, about biography or art or old age. Or um, I really I really want to just sort of create characters um, and set them loose and see what happens like a science experiment with a chemistry set. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that plays a, a, a small but important part in this book is the Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm wondering what made you include the Jewish religion in there? And I, I never knew about the tefillin, which is, is that real? Tefillin? Tefillin? They really exist. Wow. Are that, you Jewish? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, I thought it was a fascinating uh, uh, artifact. So talk about finding out what those are and, and what they what they do in the book. Well, the tefillin are um, the the what Orthodox Jews use 
to remind themselves of God, essentially. Um, and um, But my relationship to Judaism goes through, I think, all my novels, maybe not in the drink so much. I don't think there's so much about Judaism. I'm trying to remember now if there is. But definitely in Jeremy Thrain, there's a scene at an Orthodox family's house in Great Neck. And then in um, the Epicure's Lament, Hugo talks about the Jewish religion and how Leviticus is the obsessive compulsive who's most successful throughout history because he got a whole race of people to follow his hand washing and you know his compulsions. <laughs> <laughs> and then in this novel, of course, it, it figures in in the inheritance um, that Oscar keeps from Maxine, which are the tefillin. Um, and I, I'm married to a Jew, but I've been, I'm sort of a wannabe Jew, I guess, and all my life I'm Norwegian, um, which is about as far away from Judaism as you can get, except that there's like smoked fish um, and, and a vodka-like drink, and um, I don't know, I, and also a lot of mournfulness and, and um, whatever, depression. Um, but I, 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 I've, I almost converted when I got married, and I didn't convert because I had this sort of 11th hour realization that much as I would like to be, I will never be Jewish. And um, I, but in the course of almost converting, I took a course at the 92nd Street Y, like a, a Jewish, we called it Jew class, and learned a lot about Judaism. So whenever I learn a lot about something, I like to put it to use in my novels. So that's probably where that came from. And we also get Philip Larkin mentioned <laughs> twice, an, an important poet for you. Very important. And I think um, important for Maxine as well. She's the one who thinks about his his um, his poem, "The Old Fools," which is about how old people can't look at death. Um, they can't look death squarely in the eye, even though it's right there. And it's sort of a poem. It's 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 the epigraph of the book. Is that the right word? Yes. Epigraph. Yes. Um, it's so it really starts the book, um, and it's about death. And it's sort of a. I mean, Larkin is so is so dark and. Um, and I think he's really funny um, in his in his dark English way. Well, you also have a lot of fun with another poet who I, <laughs> I did actually look up to verify that she does not exist because <laughs> I was not sure. Tell us a little bit about creating Greta Church. Wow, I'm flattered you looked her up and thought she was plausibly a real poet. That's 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 good. Um, I, I had so much fun with Greta Church. Um, Greta Church is the fake poet that I made up. Um, but Henry, one of the biographers, is obsessed with her and has already written her biography. That was his first biography that he wrote. And again, she's the kind of artist that he's madly in love with in a kind of vicarious way because um, she was a heroin addict who died in a, in a rented room with a hot plate at the age of 60-something, totally romantic, artistic death, and wrote poetry that can be quoted very earnestly and passionately by Henry, her biographer, to all these bewildered women who are looking at him like, what is he quoting? What is this poetry? It's so bad. <laughs> and you'd be amazed how easy it is to write bad poetry. It sort of wrote itself as I was writing the novel. Um, and I wished I could have put more of her poetry in the novel because it was really fun to write. Did you write more than we see? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I had to bite my hands to keep myself from writing more. Well, I was also fascinated by the way that you talk about love and the power relationships between men and women and love. And I particularly like your point of uh, about the power of that the lover has over the beloved. And we don't normally think of it that way. 
You're talking about the chapter, chap, oh, I know what you're talking about, when Teddy's daughter is talking about Teddy and Oscar and how it appeared that Oscar had all the power in that relationship because Teddy loved him so much and he came and went. So it looked like Oscar was the one in control of the relationship, but really it was Teddy because she was the lover. And um, it, there's a direct correlation to S&M um, in which the masochist supposedly has all the power over the sadist, which is sort of the hidden truth of, of the power dynamic, um, which I always thought was really interesting. And so I sort of, um, I've, I think a lot about that, like how, how it works um, in life and in literature when, when one character loves another one. And um, it's, it's, it's the power to withdraw that love. And it's the way that, that the lover sustains the relationship by offering the love again and again and again. And if and it was really Teddy and Abigail, the two lovers, and Oscar, you know, being the beloved, who allowed this entire system to sustain itself. And had one of them decided she didn't want him anymore, there was really little he could do about it. It's an interesting vision of a matriarchal society that we don't normally get. It, it looks like it, it's an inverted version of the matriarchal society that we don't normally see. That's really interesting, yeah, where the, the patient, devoted wife turns out to be the one with the power. And, and I also was r- really like the point about some of the, the, the rules of attraction. There's a great scene with Ralph and Ruby where <laughs> they find themselves <laughs> in an inadvertent seduction. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's um, the black biographer who turns out to be gay, but we don't know it yet in the scene. And Ruby, the very gorgeous daughter, um, one of the twin daughters of um, Oscar and Teddy, are sitting at Teddy's table while she waits on them. And they're sort of, the conversation goes toward um, what should be attraction on both sides, but there is none, and it's very awkward for both of them. And um, this has happened to me in my life. And it's a, it's a pe- really peculiar thing that I had never really put into words before the scene. And once the scene was underway and once that happened, I realized that's something that happens that I had never put into words, that, that often there will be a conversation that will be veering toward a feeling between two people that isn't there. And the absence of the feeling causes the conversation to grind to a halt, like the words go ahead of what you're, you know, what's actually behind them. Well, this is a a big fascination with you. You seem very entranced by all the things that make people squidgy, <laughs> all the things that make your kind of skin kind of crawl, <laughs> discomfort. Why do you find discomfort so comforting as a writer? I think I because I have been so uncomfortable in so many situations and so acutely self-conscious and always feeling like it's my fault. Like any time something is wrong or I go home and, you know, I fret about it. I lie awake at night and think, what did I say? What did I say? And it, and that, that again builds up a lot of static electricity psychically. And I think, I think recreating these situations on paper is for me a way of seeing how it's not just one person's fault. It's, it's, it's a construct of two people, and it's often just a gap of understanding. Um, but there are all kinds of comical, dark possibilities inherent in squidgy situations um, when there's somebody says something that sets the other person on edge, and it sets up a whole kind of um, chain reaction. That And to go down that sort of dramatic path as I'm writing fills me with glee. 
<laughs> and the glee permeates the novel as well, which makes it really uh, quite a bit of fun to read. Oh, good. And and I was glad to see that you got some food writing in in this novel because I I, I love the descriptions of the food that Teddy makes. You, you just won't want to go to your local restaurant and say, make this for me. Read this and make it for me, please. <laughs> Actually, you can find the recipes because I spent the summer cooking um, everything in the book. I got really curious. I made up all the food as I was writing about it. Um, and there's food in almost every chapter because food is, you know, along with the biographers, food was the mechanism that got everyone together. Um, and so all the food that Teddy makes, um, I invented on the page because it sounded good. And I got curious about it. Um, and then all the food people order in restaurants and all the food that, you know, Maxine's tuna sandwich. And um, <laughs> it's so I made all of it and wrote the recipes down. Do you have them on your website? I do. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, great. Well, I'll have to look them up because I think the white bread, white fish, sal- white fish salad? Oh, you know what? I don't have the white fish salad. You, you can don't. order it from Zabar's. Okay. <laughs> well, next time. I don't, do they deliver to Aptos? <laughs> I don't know. They might FedEx. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us what you're working on now. A food book. A food book. Is it actually uh, just about food or is it about people who are getting ready to throw food at one another. (laughs) Spaghetti. It's about throwing spaghetti. I'm going to put that for you in my next novel. Oh, good. Um, I'm writing, actually, there are two books now that are sort of on deck, um, one of which I've started, which is a novel called Trouble, which is about two women my age in their mid-40s who go down to Mexico City together, old friends whose lives are falling apart. And they escape to Mexico City, um, which is like going from the frying pan into the fire, and um, all kinds of squidgy situations are sure to ensue. I, I look forward to, to <laughs> a, a, a reading discomfort marathon. With Mexican food. Oh, good. <laughs> will you get the recipes for it? I'm, I'm, I imagine I will, yeah. And, and you said you're working on a book about food? Yes, and this is sort of just a glimmer in my eye, but I've, I've been wanting to write a book about just food. Um, MFK Fisher has been my sort of one of my muses for many years, and I've had to get her voice out of my head enough to figure out how to write about food in my own way that's not directly slavishly imitating her. Um, and I think I'm about ready to do that. And and I, I'm not really sure what the structure, again, structure will be the problem, but I have I, I think I have the voice and I think I have the ideas and the sort of foods I want to write about. Um, so it'll be improvisational for a while and then I'll come up with a structure. Why, that sounds just delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and hope, I, I imagine that uh, Teddy will will uh, will chastise me for that use of delicious as refers to a novel. <laughs> I certainly think she would. We've been speaking with Kate Christensen. Her new novel is The Great Man. Thank you for joining me, Kate. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.